to the Heads and Volleys podcast with me, Lee Dunn. So I'm back from the convention, and if you didn't make it out there, I highly recommend that you go next year. It's always going to be next year. It's going to be in Los Angeles on the West Coast, so you actually get some sunshine instead of the freezing cold Baltimore weather. But what I have today is an interview with Dan Abrahams. He is a psychologist, and he just blew my mind. I went into a conversation with him on Thursday. And if you listen to the Thursday summary, I was just blown away and completely butchered, I believe, completely butchered what his presentation was all about. And so I was fortunate enough to interview him personally on Friday and really went over some of the things that he had brought to the presentation and the way that he delivered and things that I could take away selfishly from my own environment. But I think that majority of you listeners are also in a very similar position to me in working with youth and how you can really begin to get with them. And if you have listened to the preview that I put out with regards to the game phase, that to me is really going to be something significant that I'm going to work on with my players and encourage them to have some sort of ownership over who they are and what they do before the game as they walk onto the field. And as you listen to this interview, you'll notice that Dan has these incredible bombs of knowledge and most of my responses uh uh or wow or yes or that makes so much sense because it it's just so enamoring and it's so valuable and to me it was just it's groundbreaking so definitely enjoy this but before i get into that i feel it's important to add this piece of audio and kind of share go over the news of what happened with Kobe Bryant and in particular relate this podcast coming out to his his book the mamba mentality and everything he talks about i can relate to with Dan Abraham's uh, game face in terms of this mentality of not only playing the right way but playing to excel and not to just succeed so i highly recommend you read that book too and it's such a shame, but this is something that I think our my players are talking about. It's someone that has had a significant impact on them. And if you look at his legacy from the SPs in 2016, I think that he can smile and completely appreciate that we are all not only just blown away by who he was on the court, but what he's left for us to, to teach our players and to even take on our own way. So enjoy this conversation with Mr. Abrahams. I am super excited to share this with you. Leave me a voicemail at the end. Leave me some feedback. Let me know exactly what you think, because this is stuff that I think is so valuable. And let me know if it's impacted you in a way. Maybe you got to meet Dan as well or see Dan at the convention. But really do share this out there. I think there's some 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 immense quality and psychology is a huge part of any environment and something that we don't really touch on in coaching courses. And I know having gone through the pyramid now with US soccer that it was touched upon, but it was kind of a self-led thing and not really having a professional like Dan to lead the way. So this was my chance to get to you some of his incredible knowledge. sat with Dan Abrahams. Dan, a little introduction, who you are, what you do. Well, first of all, thanks so much for, for having me on your podcast, Lee. I'm really excited to, to be joining you. Uh, well, I'm Dan Abrahams, so I'm a sports psychologist. Um, I'm a former professional golfer. 
um, didn't didn't make it in the uh, playing arena of golf and coached the game. And as I was coaching, I I was in love with sports psychology. Um, prior to that, I mean, when I played and I was reading books and stuff, and um, and and but I, I think that love, that interest, built um, as I started to coach the game. It became more pertinent, and then. Um, I really got to a point where I decided to go to university to do a first degree in psychology as I was coaching and then a master's degree in sports psychology. And then I came to a crossroads, what shall I do? Shall I have be a golf coach with sports psychology on the side or in addition to or building on my golf coaching? Or do I become a sports psychologist? And I really had uh, an itch and urge to work in other sports like football, like soccer. So... Um, I decided to pack in the, the golf coaching and, and go full-time as a sports psychologist. I had to go through a registration process, and have supervision and stuff. And so that's what I've done for the last 15, 16 years. I'm, I've been a, a full-time registered sports psychologist and that's what I do now. Loving life. Indeed. It's great. <laughs> so i got a, a few questions. I'm just going to fire them off and hopefully I'll initiate some sort of discussion or... If you think it's just nonsense, say no, absolutely not. But right. the first one is that I just recently read a book about peak performance. Mm. And the idea of failing was a big takeaway. And they, they mentioned the idea of failure for players in a structured environment, in a safe environment that encourages them to, to grow and to develop from it. So my first real question is, how much failure is good for an average player or even, I guess, from your experience with elite, but then also like a beginning player too? Yeah, I, I, I think... It's a really, really good question. I think everybody's different, and I don't think you can necessarily um, draw a broad brush statement over this. Um, I think that what what we need to do better in youth academies, clubs, in talent pathways is to help players experience failure, some form of failure. Because what tends to happen is that players who go on to the college level who go on to maybe even the pro level, often they're just really good at soccer. And they've never really had much failure in their life in terms of soccer. And what we kind of hypothesize now, maybe know now, is it's really, really important, really useful for players to have some uh, experience, some roadblocks or some speed bumps along the way where they've had poor games, challenging situations, where they've been dropped, where they've gone up maybe a, a year and it, it's been really tough for them. You know, and I think that has so often been manufactured in a talent pathway that you want to try to present them with tough to deal with challenges whereby they might fail. And that's okay as long as you equip them with the capacity to deal with that failure. In my world, that would be the mental skills or developing the personality characteristics, the character, the character, if you like, to be able to deal with that failure. So I do think we have to be mindful. If we're going to set up a situation to help players experience failure, we also have to help them deal, have to give them the solutions to be able to deal with that failure. You know, we can't just say, here's the failure and then, then that's it. Now, having said that, as I'm... As I'm speaking out loud, I'm also thinking, and there will definitely be some coaches who actually think, actually, you present, say, tough to deal with situations, uh, tough to accomplish activities, 
within your soccer coaching. And actually you allow the player to brainstorm and find their own unique solutions. So actually the original answer I gave, some <laughs> coaches might disagree there. And I, I, you know, just saying to your audience off air, we were talking about nuance to, the, to all of these. And psychology is very much embedded in the gray. It's shades of gray, it's not black and white. Yes. And you've got to remember that. There's no exact answer. And there's different approaches, there's different philosophies, there's different, different ways of doing and being as a coach. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating. So, look, absolutely. I think if, if players want to attain a certain level, it's useful for them to have experience dealing with failure and know how they, how they deal with failure themselves. So then, is it worth, in your environment, I guess we talk about these meetings that coaches hold with players, of even just outlining your own style of coaching that you can say to a player... It's fair for you to assume that there's going to be failure, that this isn't going to be a walk in the park, and at least set them up to understand what they're walking into. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I always say coaches have two dials. They have a stretch dial and they have a support dial. A stretch dial and a support dial. And you've got to play with those dials. And I don't think there's anything wrong with actually saying that to players. I've got a stretch dial and a support dial, and I'm going to turn up the volume of stretch a lot. Because I care. I care. I'm passionate about you improving your game, improving your ability, developing skill, playing under pressure. I guess what better motivation for a player than to be told that the coach believes in them and that's why they are being challenged the way they are. Absolutely. And I think with that, you've also got to say, I'm also going to, in this environment, we're going to support you. I'm going to turn up the volume of support. And that's going to come in the form of you know a, a caring environment a, a, what I would call a psychologically informed environment where we take into account your personality your emotions your thoughts your experiences and also I'm going to introduce you to mental skills you know that's going to be a part of my coaching practice it's going to be a part of what you experience here so you're going to have stretch you're going to have support and and you're going to experience a holistic environment. I, think, I just think that's really, really important. So, yeah, I, look, I, I, I think you've got to be able to provide that stretch and support. And, you, and I think there's nothing wrong with being upfront about it. Sure. So then a question that I really would love to know the answer, and it comes from people way away from us right now, but... U.S. soccer, I'm working, I actually have my A-license assessment mm. uh, this Sunday. Mm. And so part, all part of that course has been a lot of the coaching theory and then a lot of physical work too. So we're working on periodization, working mm. on the work rates of players and time of the season. But what about the psychological component that a coach can learn, even like you talk about developing these mental skills that I can impart on my players because I have such an influence on them. A lot of the sessions I've been to this week have highlighted that you're, you're spending more time with your players than they are spending with their teachers at school because they see them you know, a couple of times a week. Or they're seeing their parents infrequently also because they take them to school in the morning and they pick them up at night and the hours just aren't long enough that they have together. So as somebody is a significant position of influence, you think that's something that we should be learning, especially in coaching school? Maybe I'm biased because I'm a sports psychologist, but I'm passionate about coaches having a psych-social plan 
and I use that term psychosocial as in the psychological and the social size of the game because I'm a big believer that the psychosocial drives the other components. The psychosocial drives the technical, the tactical, the physical, in my humble opinion. And those subsequently drive participation, progression and performance. Those three Ps that, as a coach, you know, all coaches are invested in, essentially. Yes. And so... I think it's so important for coaches to have a psychosocial plan. You've mentioned periodization, whether that's a physical periodization, a tactical periodization, a mix of the two. And I think we're so socialized into those kind of things because they're correct, it's right, it's great, it's fantastic, you know, and I, and I get that. But we're not socialized into having a psychosocial plan. What is your psychosocial plan for yourself? For your players, for your coaching staff, what is your psychosocial plan? And that, for me, is so, so important. And that can be for your self-skills, for your coaching practice, for your environment. It could be for individuals. It could be for, you know, how do you motivate players? How do you help players motivate themselves? How do you help players learn? How, what mental skills are you going to introduce? To help them be better performers. It could be the three, what I call the three ships from a group perspective. Teamship, leadership, um, relationship. So what is your psychosocial plan? I think that's really important. I don't think enough coaches pay attention to that. And I do think sometimes, if I may say, and I think coaching courses these days are brilliant. But I think sometimes... We hide away the psych side in, into a corner, if you like, and a social, the social side into a corner. You know, you've got the psychological corner and the social corner and the technical tactical corner and the, the physical corner. And people sort of start to refer to psychology as, oh, I've got to, you know, I've got to have the psychology corner here. And it's like, well, whoa, stop. Psychology is omnipresent. Psychology is always happening. It's there all the time. It's there as you sit down and write your activities. It's there as you arrive in the building. It's there as you walk out onto the pitch. It's there when you greet players. It's there in your interactions. It's there in body language. It's there in your facial features. It's there in your interactions with parents, if you're working at that level. It's there all the time. Your players carry your sessions with them as they go home. You know, in their mind, in their nervous system, through their body, it's permanently there. So bear that in mind. Psychology, psychosocial is omnipresent. You need a psychosocial plan, in my opinion. Now, one thing I really want to say to finish off this answer is that I know, I'm not, I fully appreciate and I'm sensitive to the fact that the vast majority of coaches are volunteer coaches. They're busy people. They're not professional coaches. They have their own jobs. They have their own... They have a family. But what I would potentially ask of coaches is spend 10 minutes a week developing your psychosocial plan. Worst way, 10 minutes a week. 10 minutes a week reading a book and starting to formulate what your psychosocial plan is. What your psychosocial framework is. I think that's so, so important. And it could be as 10 minutes a week. And that's fine. That's cool. That's okay. Because your life is busy. 
because you've got a job, because you've got a family, and that's all potentially you can afford. And that's cool. So please don't misunderstand me. I'm not bullying or being overly demanding of coaches. I'm sensitive to that fact. Incredible. Think about the amount of time that you spend 10 minutes on other things that you could really divert into this idea of, if not anything, beginning to understand yourself and beginning to have this, this, this care for yourself, if anything. And of course, if we're all here as we are with a growth mindset, then that's something that we should really be striving for, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. So within within this this idea of our players being, I guess we're, we're talking about the the providing this this one of the words I'm looking for here. So really, with my players, mm. I'm thinking about goals with them, and okay. goals often lead away to it can be positive. With a, if we think in psychosocial side that we're successful collectively as a team, yep. we've identified our goals. And then I hear mixed reviews of people moving away from goal setting or going mm. to goal setting. So what about identifying smaller goals within that? And I think that's the, that's the kind of common sense idea that we yep. have a big goal that we kind of work towards incrementally. But yep. really, we have, if I'm encouraging players to set goals, do I do that with them or do I have them do that alone? And then what do I do with that information? Because I can collect a lot of information in terms of what are your goals? Where do you want to go? You've got a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, a one-year plan, a six-month plan. And then facilitating that along the way in terms of setting the player up for success. A very loaded question. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think it's a challenging question because I think, again, and I fully appreciate you work with a group of players... But there are going to be, there is going to be nuance, and there are going to be individual differences. What I tend to say to coaches these days about goal setting is to be quite autonomy supportive with it. And let me explain myself there. For me, the most powerful form of goal setting is to sit down with a player and to ask open-ended questions. It's to ask them. What do you want to achieve? What does success look like for you? And elicit from them. And look, clearly you're not going to do that with eight-year-olds, right? <laughs> but um, what, does, what do you want to achieve? What does success look like for you? And you might prompt them by saying, you know, I'd like to know that from an outcome perspective. And they might give you some goals around outcome. Like, I want to play for the team and I want to have this many appearances and so on and so forth. And then you might ask them, okay, well, what's going to help you to do that? What does, what do those, what kind of performances do you need to put in to be able to do that? What do you need to do in training? What do you need to focus on? And so you'll start to have a conversation around that. So you try to induce the answer from them, elicit the answer from them. Yes. And then I think you get down to the nitty-gritty, which is, okay, so let's use a working example to highlight our point here. It's a striker. And a striker says, well, you know, I want to score 15 goals this season. And you ask them, okay, what have you got to do to be able to do that? And they might think about it and they'll say, well, I've got to get 
you know, uh, I've got to get quicker because I've got to get in behind the defenders and I've got to, you know, I've got to get my shots away. So I've got to be braver there. And, you know, I've got to, I've got to work on my, my movement. I've got to, you know, make sure I keep looking for space and things like that and all those kind of things. Okay. And then you might ask them, okay, well, how can I help you do that? What, what are we going to work on together? How am I going to help you do that? What do you need me to emphasize? What do you need me to reinforce? And really that question is around that old word, the process, you know, what does that process look like? And so you're stripping it back to things that players can, control is a strong word, but get closer to controlling, you know, and so I think it's, it, it's breaking it down from outcome to performance to process, but getting the player to drive that through open-ended questions. And of course, along that conversational journey, you can, you can offer suggestions. You know, you don't simply follow the player. You can offer suggestions, you can offer advice. And maybe at times you might want to be a little bit stronger and you might say well this is what I've noticed about your game I hear what you're saying but I also think this thing here could help you a little bit more I've noticed this about you in training I'd really like it if we could work on this thing so you're offering suggestions you're offering solutions as well so it becomes a co-creation but I think, first of all, you've got to be player-led. You've got to let the player drive that. I think that's really, really important because then, you're, then you as a coach are starting to understand the world through their eyes and the world in their boots or their sneakers, if you like. <laughs> Cleats, as we like to call Cleats, them. Cleats, yeah. sorry, that was the word. Um, I'm an Englishman, we don't use, <laughs> use that word. Sorry, one of those? Yeah. <laughs> so then the, the two big takeaways I took there were, number one, it's... It's player-led and it's the process. Mm. And that the question that's so powerful is, how can I help you? Because I think m- maybe many coaches don't have an experience of getting to a professional level yeah. or achieving the greatness in the sport that they're perhaps coaching in because maybe they coach their kid, maybe they just they love it like I do and I never had the, the, the opportunity to go that high. I mean, if I had a better coach, I probably would have done. But, okay. you know, but then looking at how can I help you and recognizing almost humbly enough, if I don't know what that is, you've asked me to help you and I'm not quite sure, that's an opportunity for me to improve too. I love it, 100%. And it's understanding that coaching isn't necessarily about I've got all this knowledge in my head and I'm going to pass it over to you because you don't live in that person's nervous system. And there's no doubt that there are certain behaviours, principles of play in soccer, behaviours that are probably true that you want to impart on your players, a piece of wisdom here, a piece of wisdom there that you'd like to, again, impart. But I do think your entrance point is to help your players, your, your people, express their narrative. Um, you've got to give them an opportunity to tell their story, to inform you about what they believe and feel and see and think. 
because too often we're quick to pounce and go, well, this is what you need. I can fix it. And this is how we're going to do it. And you know what? A lot of the time that might work and that's fine. But sometimes it doesn't work. And maybe I might shift that around and say sometimes it does work and a lot of the time it doesn't work. And what I would say to coaches who are listening and skeptically is just try it. Just try and shift a little bit. Just try and have a conversation whereby you're getting the player to drive that narrative, to, to tell you what they think that they need. And I guess if I relate that to being on the field with players, it creates an environment where they are going back to the failure and they're going and they're trying and you're allowing them to experience it. You're allowing them to try and figure out a solution. And the same thing here in terms of you lead the player and you just prompt them and asking questions and it's that flip from this coach center to a player center? I believe so. I believe so. You know, it's asking questions on the pitch. And I think, again, we have this real fix-it mentality. And I think a big part of, you know, a useful question you can ask, if a player is making certain decisions on the pitch and engaging in certain behaviors... Actually, just asking rather than fixing straight away, it's asking the question, the open question or the divergent question, as we might say. You know, what did you see there that made you make that decision? What did you see? What did you see there that led you to make that decision? Um, was there anything else you, that you could have looked at or you could have considered that would have prompted you to make a different decision? And so what you're doing, you're, that's working on so many different levels in terms of you're getting players to recognize that there are other things on the pitch that they could have scanned and looked for and searched for and looked for to be able to make alternative decisions. I, I just think that's such, a, such an important thing. It's, it, it almost, it's almost difficult for coaches too, and I definitely find myself in a similar position where you feel like as a coach you've got to be talking you've got to be engaging you've got to be doing something otherwise you seem to be doing nothing but there's so much power in being in that shadow almost and allowing the players to go through the motion of the well and, and, and there's uh, there are a number of coaches out there who are more ecological with their coaching and by that I mean they'll set tasks whereby they think the tasks are the things that change behavior. So the task being the rules, being the type of game, being the shape of the, the pitch, the design, uh, the, the instructions for the players, those things, and when I say instructions, I mean the game design and the game instruction, and they just let the task drive behavior change, and then they're just there to ask questions. What did you experience there? What made you make that decision? What did you see? Were there other options? You know, they might set problems within the game that means that players have to problem solve to be able to unlock clues as to the kind of behaviors the coach wants them to engage in. So that's, that's a very different way of coaching, but it's a very impactful and effective way. And what that's doing is it's empowering the player to come up with their own solutions. Because there's a lot of coaches out there who say, 
that's the key. I can't tell a player what to do. I want to set up an environment, a bunch of tasks that enable the player to find their own unique behavioral solutions. Yesterday was insisting leads to resisting for a lot of players that can lead that Yeah, way. I said, didn't I? I said, yeah. insistence can lead to resistance. Um, and that's where, where we tend to go with that with co- as coaches is we go, oh, well, he or she isn't coachable. <laughs> he or she isn't coachable. Doesn't They're not coachable. Good. And yet some of the champions in all sports or many of the champions in all sports aren't particularly coachable. They're very, they're very disagreeable characters. They're demanding. Um, they like the way they see the world. Yes. And to be a great coach of great players, to be a great coach of great players is to be a great coach of difficult players. And you've got to be great at your open-ending questions. You've got to be patient. You've got to be accepting who you've got in front of you. You might not be able to coach Roy Keane in terms of telling him what to do if we were to pick out a particular (laughs) player from the past, but you might be able to ask questions. You might be able to utilize him to set up tasks and then have a great coaching conversation with him. What did you see there? Why did you set up that task? What did, you know, why, why would you do that? why I think it's such a powerful question because it insight it elicits like you said it elicits that yeah that information yeah so I want to go and touch on something you mentioned last night about the game face mm. you started your, your talk with the repetition of this and I want to also go into the 10 out of 10 HPM I'm just I'm just fascinated by it so the idea of having a game face how do we explain what it is really and then because I think I did a bad job of explaining last night in my wrap up of the day so I'd love to have an official explanation and then wonder how we begin to do that with any player that we work with or any individual that we surround ourselves with so a game face is both a linguistic and a visual representation of who you want to be on the pitch it's in many respects the personality you want to be It's how you want to go about your business. It's how you want to execute your actions. It's the embodiment of who you want to be. It's built from your memory and your imagination and your perception. Your memory is in, tell me about you at your best. Your imagination as in, tell me about you in your dream game your perception as in tell me about who you want to be and when you pose those questions for players and they start to talk about their best games their dream games who they want to be on the pitch you need to be able to direct them towards or you need to be able to elicit from them action-based words when you're at your best what does that look like Is it sharp? Is it alert? Is it alive? Is it lively? Is it relentless? Is it dominant? Is it demanding? Is it cool? Is it calm? Is it relaxed? Is it confident? Is it tall? Is it upbeat? What does it look like? What does it feel like? If I've got a camera on you, what is the camera seeing? And so you want them to pick a couple of action-based words. Like, say, let's, let's say dominant and relentless. Dominant and relentless. 
and then you want them to be able to complete this picture metaphor. We could stop there at dominant and relentless, but it's useful to ask them to relate that to a model player or an animal. So if it's just striker, the striker might say dominant, relentless, oh, that's Aguero for me. I really love Aguero. I love the way he goes about his business on the pitch. Dominant, relentless Aguero. Dominant, relentless Aguero. Or a player might really like the idea of relating that to an animal. So a lion, dominant, relentless lion, dominant, relentless lion. So a player might pick a game face of dominant, relentless, as an example. Or it might be dominant, relentless Aguero. Or it might be dominant, relentless lion, as examples. Or it might be something slightly more conceptual. Uh, like it might relate to a great game they've had and you know maybe a, a client of mine once said well I had my best game against Liverpool and it became something like sharp alert Liverpool come on I want to see sharp alert Liverpool and so let's go back to say dominant relentless lion so the game face idea is my job on the pitch is to be dominant relentless lion dominant relentless lion that's who I'm going to be that's how I'm going to act that's how I'm going to go about my business. Dominant, relentless line. Dominant, relentless line. Nothing and no one takes me away from dominant, relentless line. I'm going to say it, do it, be it, act it. Say it, do it, be it, act it. I'm going to be that non-stop. If I'm losing a small personal battle, dominant, relentless line. If we go a goal down, dominant, relentless line. If I make a mistake, dominant, relentless line. I'm going to be that non-stop. And that becomes their narrative going into a game. And I think that's vitally important. And you mentioned HPM, which is high performance mindset. A 10 out of 10 high performance mindset. That's what I'm demanding from my clients. Come on, let's have a 10 out of 10 high performance mindset. And one of the techniques that's utilized within that is a game face. That means being dominant relentless line, dominant relentless line, as an example. So that all leads you to that 10 out of 10 high performance mindset. That's a part of your routine. That's something yeah. that they're saying to themselves before they walk on the field, before they... Do, do, is that incorporating like a, a routine? I think about you put on your shoes, your shoes, your cleats, your boots. That's your... Those are your tools for your work, if you like. That, to me, I imagine that being a part of a process that once you're in those shoes, that's adding to that dominant, relentless life. Absolutely. It's embodied. It's in, it's in your kit. It's in your boots. It's in the name of your team. It's, in many respects, it's, it's built into the name of the opposition. When I go play Liverpool, I love it because I'm going to be dominant, relentless lion. When I walk under that this is Anfield sign, I love it because what that sign means to me is I'm going to be dominant, relentless lion. I don't care that Liverpool are Liverpool. I don't care about that. I'm not interested in that. What I care about is when I step foot on the pitch at Anfield, I'm dominant, relentless line. That's what Liverpool means to me. And that's, that's the challenge of competitive play. At the moment, Liverpool play like Liverpool because everybody thinks of Liverpool as playing like Liverpool. I want my clients, if I'm working with a client who doesn't play for Liverpool to be able to go to Liverpool and go, I don't give a damn who Liverpool are, I'm dominant, relentless line. I'm dominant, relentless line. I'm dominant, relentless line. That's what Liverpool means to me. Not Mane, not Trent, not Van Dijk, not Klopp, 
not Anfield, not You'll Never Walk Alone, not in that song, not in This Is Anfield, not in Best Team in the World, not in World Championship. None of that means anything to me. My narrative is Dominant Relentless Lion. I can't wait. I'm going to say it, be it, do it, act it. Every single responsibility within my role, I'm Dominant Relentless Lion. I'm embodying that. And let's be clear, where we get it wrong in psychology is we sell in psychology is above the neck, the neck upwards. It's not. It's from your head downwards and from your feet upwards. It's your whole body. Psychology is your body. It's the embodiment of your mental processes. Every single inch of my body is going to be dominant relentless lion. My feet my knees, my hips, my legs, my stomach, my torso, my back, my arms, my head, my gestures, my searching, my runs, my movement, my positioning, my actions, my shooting, my passing, my heading, dominant relentless line. That's what I do, that's what I be. And I don't give a damn where it is, what pitch it is, who it's against, who I'm marking, who I'm up against. I'm dominant relentless line. That, Lee, is what a game faces. And that is now bringing that full circle to the people we're talking to right now, coaching too. Coach can have a game face. Coach should have a game face. Same as a player should. I believe so. I think it's a really useful tool to have. Having a, you might call it a coach face. But having something that allows you to build the capacity to manage yourself when the environment places a stressor on you. That's such an important technical tool or strategy to have. So valuable. I think, again, back to that health mindset that you are able to, you're providing something for yourself. It's almost security too because everything is, can be so unpredictable about a game and about the environment around a game or around a training session that you have this kind of grounding within your own mindset like you say nothing's going to put me off if you are it's a contact sport it's a it's a not combat sport it's an invasion game but we're trying to get against you if i have this grounding i have an element of control about my own behavior within the game absolutely so i um with my i heard a quote actually yesterday that somebody put in their presentation of you and it was that when you self-reflect you are processing information on a deeper level of learning so, again, back to this whole idea of growth mindset, and we all want to be better people, we all want to be better coaches, we all want to be better role models, better husbands or wives. So, what does that look like in its most effective form? What is self-reflection in its most, most, in its most successful form, or most effective form? Yeah, and I think that can be different for different players, but by and large, it's giving yourself some, some quiet time. Funnily enough, in my, one of my books, Soccer Tough 2, I actually used the chapter title Going Dark for this, for about uh, post-game evaluation, because I, I nicked that from, do you remember the uh, series 24 with yeah, Kiefer, 24. Yeah. Kiefer Sutherland? And they always used to say, I'm going dark, I'm going dark, when they went <laughs> offline, right? So I was like, after a game, give yourself a few hours. It's an emotional game. You're up or you're down, depending on what's happened. Give yourself a few hours and then a lot some time to go dark. Right? I'm going dark. I'm going dark. And then 
then you just got to go into your world and give yourself a mark out of 10 for your performance. Give yourself a mark out of 10 for your mindset. Reflect on that performance. Why so high? What do I need to do to notch it up the next time? Is there anything I need to do in training and anything I need to start? Think about your mindset. Why so high? Will you explain why so high? Because you said that yesterday and I love it. Yeah, sorry, I should have explained that. So if I'm saying my performance is 8 out of 10, I think my first question needs to be, why am I giving myself a mark an 8 out of 10? Why so high? Is there anything I can do to get to 9 out of 10? And I need to do that, I need to do that with my mindset. Oh, okay, I was 6 out of 10. Why so high? Because the often wording is, why so low? Yeah, because absolutely. we want to be 10 out of 10. Absolutely. And I think we've got to turn that around. And I think the first question and the most important question is why so high? What went well? What was good? And then, is there anything I can do better? And I also think you've got to ask yourself, you know, who can I, who can I find to help me to get that up a notch? You know, if, if, if that's a personal thing, if that's a relevant thing. As a coach, how can I help you? If I'm asking now, let me ask you about this going dark idea for players or for coaches too. Yeah. That if the idea is to go dark and reflect, are they sharing that reflection? Are we asking players to share that reflection? I think if we've got an environment where it's a psychologically informed environment and we've got an integrated psychological process and we're giving space for players to express vulnerability, a psychologically safe environment then I think we give players the opportunity to be honest and open. And I think that's crucial. And I don't think we do that well enough in soccer because soccer is a sport and we've been so socialised into sport being about being tough and being strong and being disciplined and all these kind of words. And actually, those words get in the way. They get in the way. They get in the way of consistent high performance. They get in the way of mental excellence, of being mentally skillful. So the ideal scenario in any coaching um, practice in any team is to offer that space for players to say, look, if you want to come to me and say, hey, coach, I had a 5 out of 10 performance there, I know I did. Or, hey coach, you know what, and this, this is the tough one, I had a 4 out of 10 with my mindset, because that feels taboo in this industry. Then that's an outstanding coaching environment, in my opinion. That's an outstanding coaching practice. That's a 21st century coaching practice, from what we know about human beings and how they function. And what we know about high performance, in my opinion. So I absolutely, absolutely think a high performance environment, a psychologically informed environment, is one that allows sharing. And I think that's from player to coach and coach to player. And I actually also think the ideal scenario is from player to player. And maybe that at a very adult elite level, that's wishful thinking. But... Maybe one day we, we, we have a coaching culture that allows for that. Sure, yeah. Brilliant. It, 
just I'm still fascinated by it. And even though it's touching on even just some of the stuff we talked about last night or we listened to last night, that this, the just the I guess my biggest takeaways are like how can I help you? Can I give you the tools or help you to find this game face, this ritual, this something that makes you feel comfortable? And I think. If anyone can take that away, they can take that to their team, they can take that to their individual, they can take that to themselves. And mm. I think that's really empowering. Yeah, absolutely. So you reference a lot in your talks about the Sports Psych Show, which is your podcast. Yep. Uh, I recommended everyone last night to listen to it. I listen to as many as I can. And I think the, the people that you get on there, the, and even your own insight within it too, is, is like this podcast on steroids. So everybody should be listening to that. So. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, I, I think... If the sports like show is good, it's because I've got great guests. It's very much, it, it embodies that idea of standing on the shoulder of giants. You know, I get the opportunity to speak to brilliant people, brilliant sports psychs and coaches and sports scientists and stuff. And we talk about sports psychology and they're great. And uh, it's great to talk to people who are much more intelligent than you and as in me, not you, uh, <laughs> Lee, if I may say. Oh, it's just me, girl. just me. Um, and, and I've... In the year and a half I've done it so far, I've learned so much. I've learned so much. Uh, I really, really have. It's just great, you know, to talk to Professor Sophia Jarrett, who's the world's leading expert on coach-athlete relationships. You know, it's great to talk to um, Dr. Jamie Barker at Loughborough University about challenging threat states in athletes. It's great to talk to Dr. Matt Slater about social identity theory, you know, with relation to developing teams. It's great to talk about uh, talk to Professor Stephen Rolnick, who pioneered, pioneered motivational interviewing in the world of psychology and, and how that can change behavior, this particular framework. It's just awesome, and I've just learned so much, and I'm very humbled by it. Um, so, yeah, it's great. Well, Dan, I really appreciate your time. This is just for me, and selfishly, but for anybody that, that finds himself on the listening end of this, I really hope that they got as much out of it as I have, or at least this idea of this curious quotient that it's just enough to whet your appetite. It's enough to, in, it's enough to initiate, that, initiate that 10 minutes of reading. Just uh, go and find out more. Go and Google a game face. Go and, go and begin to get amongst the weeds of what the benefit, and give it a go with your players. Like you say, this, what's the worst that's gonna happen? Your player's gonna tell you that they're not comfortable with this, or that you figure it out with them, or they, they, they maybe do it, they maybe don't, but there's nothing to lose here. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Please do. Please go try it. Please go try it. That's all. You know, just go for it. And people connect with you on Twitter? Yeah. Uh, so I actually have three Twitter accounts, but the relevant one, I suppose, for this audience is my soccer one, which is at DanAbrahams77. Giving away my age there. I'm not 77 years old, <laughs> but I was born in 1977. So at DanAbrahams77. You can uh, follow me on Facebook um, at Dan Abrahams Soccer on Instagram at Dan Abrahams uh, Sport and uh, I'm trying to remember that. You deeply thinking. <laughs> uh, my podcast, the Sports Site Show, my e- um, uh, my um, uh, website, um, which is danabrahams.com. Uh, I have an online academy there, so that might uh, be of interest. So yeah, look, if, Lee, it's been an honour and a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm. It's at the end of the day here at the convention. <laughs> I am thoroughly exhausted. So I've tried to answer your questions as best I can. I hope I haven't sounded too fatigued. Absolutely uh, I'm still living off UK time here. I think I've hardly had any sleep. 
uh, and that's not through uh, raucous uh, celebrations <laughs> at night and, and drinks. It's been mainly through presenting and doing podcasts and having meetings. So, but I appreciate the time you've given me to talk about the stuff I'm passionate about. Dan, thank you very much. Thank you. So I really hope that you have just been intrigued enough in terms of how you can challenge and serve your better players better for their mental side of the game. So things like a game face or things like you just reading 10 extra minutes a day or studying 10 extra minutes a day in some field of psychology so you can better look after and better prepare yourself and better prepare your players too for their own environments. Follow Dan on Twitter. He has plenty of good stuff. His podcast is outstanding. I can't recommend it enough. Thanks for listening to Heads and Volleys. I would love your feedback, as I said. Leave me a voicemail. Follow me on Twitter, at Lee Dunsocker. Follow Dan Abrahams, at DanAbrahams77. And more coming from Heads and Volleys real soon.